0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, our guest today is John Woods. John is the Chief Academic Officer and Provost for the University of Phoenix and responsible for further developing and fulfilling the university's academic mission. Now, during the interview, you'll learn of John's journey to amplify the university's high quality of career relevant academic programs. See, John understands that education needs to be focused on what students want and need from their teachers and their institutions, especially the adult ones. Now, we'll also discuss the importance of an education focused on the individual and what is considered as true innovation in higher education today. And we'll also discuss how we need to move to a student-centered education model where the perspective is guided through the student's eye instead of the industry's needs. In fact, this was one of the themes that we widely discussed at my organization's 2021 Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit, where we asked students, patients, and employees to explore the ways that we can unleash individuality by interrupting our assumptions about who belongs where, doing what and how. If you'd like to watch the 2021 Summit on demand, you can register free at 2021summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Now, before we get started, make sure to click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. John, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Glenn, for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat with you today.
0: Well, thanks, John. I, you know, we always ask our guests to kind of let them ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves because, uh, unfortunately, in this day age of personalization, we've come to learn that nobody really knows anybody anymore. So, (laughs) and as we move from uh, standardization, uh, I think that'll that'll eventually change. But let's start by asking. Tell us a little bit about you as an individual, John, and what really inspired you to pursue a career in higher education?
1: Yeah, I am um, the youngest of three, and and both my older sisters, I think, were way smarter than me, four and five years older, but didn't go to college. And it's sort of the typical story of a first-generation college student. My um, parents didn't know that they could go to college, didn't encourage that. And uh, for some reason, probably family friends uh, along the way kind of encouraged uh, my parents to have that conversation with me and off I went but I, I didn't know how to uh, how to be a college student I wasn't successful when I got there uh I took a long time to finish and when I did finish my last couple of years in in college I was really really involved in uh, student government really liked the workings of the college I saw a lot of people come and and maybe not make the most of college, and I certainly did having uh kind of had to get over some hurdles and and figure out how to be successful there myself uh my seven year bachelor's journey i i call it and uh I, I it all clicked for me, and i just i started really really enjoying it and uh when I left my master's program, I wanted to do something that was related to college administration and I was in Canada at the time, and I found these programs in the U.S. fascinating in higher education administration, a Ph.D. program. So off I went thinking I would go back to Canada and work at a college or university. But I got a job in the U.S. and developed a real passion for helping uh, adult learners get in and through college and use college as a way to upskill and use college as a way to change the trajectory of their life. Their career uh, and and in doing so, maybe change the trajectory of their family's life. Uh, and uh, so, I've been passionate for twenty five years about adults in higher education. And uh, as you said, innovation to try and uh, make adults uh, fit better into higher ed and be more successful in higher ed.
0: I love the story. And by the way, thanks for giving me hope because um, I didn't go seven, but I went five, and it was. It was very challenging for me, too. And it's really interesting now because, you know, now that higher education is or education in general is trying to be uh, designed for the individual. um, And this is clearly the case when it comes to adult learning. uh, I, I learned the hard way that while I felt like I was failing, I realized that I was just trying to understand a system that wasn't right for me. And uh, now it's great that there are programs out there like the University of Phoenix that makes it more about the individual. So uh, I survived the standardization route uh, and it seems like you did, too. <laughs> so uh, yep. thanks again. And, and... I feel like half the battle was navigation. <laughs> totally. Well, it's yep. really interesting you say that, John, because even when you think about careers, I mean, who teaches anybody how to navigate anything in their career? how do you navigate a corporate environment? How do you even learn how to navigate your life these days? It's kind of like a, a hit and miss. But uh, I know that you've got programs at uh, University of Phoenix that can enlighten a lot of adult learners and we'll get into it. But I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, it's the whole navigation that I think is so important these days.
1: Yeah. And I I saw firsthand uh, last weekend, we had a commencement in Atlanta and the the adults the pride of of having figured out how to navigate, getting back into higher ed, getting through it. They've got kids there and the kids are watching their their parents walk across the stage. It is uh, really, really gratifying work. And we've done, I think, a lot to kind of um, examine all the barriers hmm. and smooth out some of the bumps and, and uh, make it so the, the learner, in this case, the adult, can really focus on, on learning and not the tangled system of, of getting through the place.
0: Well, on that note, um, maybe you can t- just, if, just for our listeners uh, and viewers uh, on YouTube, but can you take us back a bit? Um, when did you join uh, the University of Phoenix and uh, how has leadership actually changed at University of Phoenix and why has it changed? What, what has been the big uh, motive for the change and uh, what trajectory uh, is the institution headed in?
1: Yeah, I joined at the start of 2018 and uh Peter Cohen our president had joined almost a year earlier. And um I, you know we had uh undergone a process where we were a publicly traded entity and and uh, we went privately held. And uh, the new the new owners um wanted to see the university make some changes and I think some big changes. Mm-hmm. Uh we wanted uh, to really pair back the number of programs we had and uh, pair them back to ones that had above average job projection growth Uh, we wouldn't add a new program unless it had above job uh, above average job projection growth Um, we wanted students to be more successful and revisit some of the old ways that we had done things in the past we wanted to uh, get innovative again we were a pioneer for so long and I, i think there was a period there where we maybe weren't as much of a pioneer. Mm. And so it was really motivating to join the university at that time, a real kind of uh, an inflection point in the history of a storied institution serving working adults.
0: So, John, let's touch on two things that you mentioned, and they, they, let's go to one on innovation. Um, how do you, you know, this is a, a term that is often used, <laughs> to say the least. But how does the University of Phoenix define innovation?
1: Oh, well, in uh, in a lot of different places, we innovate. I'll give you some examples, maybe in, in my area to kind of help you figure out kind of how we define it or think about it. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll take a look, for instance, at a, a course that trips up a lot of working adults because they've been out of school for a long time, uh, a math course they have to take, for example. And that's not sometimes because they can't do math. It's because they haven't done a college math class mm. and they haven't uh, done formal math and uh, we'll take that course and we'll make some changes to it and we'll train the faculty of, around those changes. And with the amount of scale we have, we can test into those changes. I can run a few sections that are new and, and improved and, and see how they go and watch them really, really carefully. And if the changes seem to work, Uh, we can lean into those changes and scale them up. So for for us, innovation is a a constant process of trying to be better the next day than we were yesterday and to lean on data to help us make those decisions as to if we are getting better the next day. So, you know, data can be really, really powerful. And with the scale we have, exponentially powerful in helping us make Change or uh, innovate, as you said.
0: Yeah, well, and the reason I ask is that I've often said that without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. And uh, you've given us an example how uh, University of Phoenix is constantly evolving, uh, and as data as a mechanism, especially given your business model. But uh, you're also helping us understand that uh, substitutional thinking just doesn't work anymore, especially when you're serving a student body that uh, requires, um, they, that they themselves, uh, are required to evolve as marketplace as the marketplace shifts and moves in the So, um, I, I like the way you, you, were, you know, the example was excellent, John. Now here's the other thing that I picked up from the prior responses job projection growth. Is this one of your key metrics at the university of Phoenix?
1: So the number of students who are in programs that have the highest uh, projected job growth is something we watch very, very closely. Um, we know that probably now more than at any time in, in the university's uh, history, the student is focused on time and time to value. Hmm. That's, uh, you know, they come back to school uh, thinking, I want a better job. And whereas they used to think the University of Phoenix or, or other colleges will help me get a better job when I'm finished, mm. now they want a better job while they're in school. They want multiple better jobs as they progress through school. And this really drove our thinking about redesigning all of the courses in all of the programs to tag them for skills. Mm. We tag all the skills that you're learning, both hard and soft in a program, and we can communicate that to you in a skills dashboard and you in turn can communicate that to your employer uh, or a prospective new employer, you might be able to get a new job while you're in school because you show them the skills you've just learned are the ones they're looking for in the job they just posted. And so that form of innovation is, is a function to go back to where you were before on strategy. The strategy is we got to help students do better right away. Even if it's in a degree program that they're taking part-time that might take five or six years to finish, mm-hmm. we got together multiple times during that five, six years. And so that strategy drove the implementation of skills tagging and a skills dashboard.
0: Again, I know I wasn't prepared for this one, but you're sparking so many thoughts. But <laughs> what what seem to be the the high trending skills that are required to increase, you know, uh, job projection growth. Anything that you can share,
1: John? Well, um, I'll start with the soft skills. and I'll start with one that's sort of foundational to the uh, premise of our uh, founder, Dr. Sperling, in the 70s. And, it, and he built the university so that at the time, every single course had a learning team assignment in it. And in any ranking you ever see come out uh, from any of the big uh, consulting companies, uh, you see, in terms of the soft skills, teamwork and, and collaboration is a, a executive functioning kind mm-hmm. of skill that is in the top two or three every single time. Mm-hmm. So, from the very first day we were founded, we had learning teams in our programs and in our courses, and so that's that's uh, collaboration, which has remained consistent. Um, we would have um, communication. And we would have critical thinking these uh, things come up time and time again as as the top soft skills, the hard skills aren't defined by us. The interesting about the hard skills is we partnered with uh, MC Mm -hmm. and uh, MC looks at all of the different job codes, all the different job descriptions, all of the different job postings, and they scrape from all that Mm -hmm. uh, a combination of government data and company data. They scrape from all that to understand what the top skills are that are uh, hard skills in certain fields or professions. And we've mapped those to our programs to know exactly where they are and where we assess them. Hmm. Uh, and, and so they, they vary. Technical skills vary, of course, but uh, by, by program, by discipline. But the, the point is having a, an understanding of what they are and mapping our curriculum for them. Uh, so that we could we could with confidence say to an employer tomorrow, we can help you fill that job with somebody who's learned those skills. Mm-hmm. So it
0: seems to me that University of Phoenix has always been student centered. How do you how do you how does that play out uh, in
1: your model? Well, um, I, I, I think it's a number of things, uh, a little bit in the design. And, and you mentioned personalization versus standardization, the standard model is that students at the University of Phoenix will take a course at a time because as a, as a largely working adult population, the ability to focus on one set of knowledge at a time as opposed to two or three classes yeah. um, really we've, we found to be a, a, one of the success factors. Um, and so we think that's very student-centric. Mm-hmm. Um, we've used predictive models to anticipate when our academic counselors should reach out to a student hmm. uh, who who we think might be struggling. And that's a form of, again, a standardized model, a standardized algorithm with terabytes of data supporting it, uh, helping us figure out how, who and how to call or how to reach and when to reach a student and what message they might need or what support they might need. Hmm. Uh, and then the policies and procedures are something we're always looking at. And just in the last few years, we changed a number of these. When when uh, online learning was probably newer, I think maybe we uh, sort of leaned a bit towards policies that would prove to the outside world who might be suspicious of online that, that it was really rigorous. Hmm. I'll give you an example: if an assignment is late, faculty member can can uh, give it a zero.
2: Hmm.
1: They can deduct a few points so they can give it a zero. It was their choice if the assignment was late, and by late, I mean a few minutes. Wow. that's a rigorous policy that would prove to someone who thought online might be not on par with on-ground, that online was rigorous. Well, it's a policy many institutions had for a long time, and uh, it it needed to be revisited. And so faculty now can apply a, a, a maximum deduction uh, but they don't have carte blanche to do anything they want. And the student knows mm-hmm. they've got consistency across their experience. Yeah. Um, Late to something and life happens. Uh, what kind of grace they're going to get. So every single policy, every single design element in a course is sort of, um, you know, thought through the, the student's eyes, the customer's eyes in, in our, in our world, there's an awful lot of discovery that happens where we're constantly talking to our students and asking them how things are going. And one more quick example, we launched a student portal that is mobile. Hmm. And the of people who you use the single button that we have on there, where they can share something they achieved at the University of Phoenix to LinkedIn, is through the roof. Uh, we have a dean's list and a presence list. And last quarter, over 4,000 students pressed a button on their student portal to share directly to LinkedIn that they made the dean's list. Wow. And so they simultaneously felt like we connected with them this way. We acknowledge their achievement and they could easily share with the world. And, and that's pretty, uh, pretty powerful way of looking at the world through the student's eyes. They're looking to be recognized. They're looking to be able to share an achievement with others. And we hit those marks. Yeah, well, it,
0: it goes without saying that uh, the student wants to feel as if they're part of the actual community. And that they can influence it and share in its success Uh, rather than uh, being told how to do that, that you give them the means in which to do it themselves, which I think is a very powerful way of of helping them uh, helping them help the institution uh, co-design what the future of the institution might look like. Um, So so on that note, let's go to the pandemic for a moment. I mean, how did the institution fair during the pandemic and, and what changed on the other side
1: of it? So uh, let me unpack that. We had about um, 5,000 students who still took classes at our campuses across the country when the pandemic hit. Hmm. So when, when folks think, oh, University of Phoenix was probably fine. Everybody's online. We weren't. Um, That said, uh, those students who studied on campus were, uh, Uh, leveraging a learning management system for some of their experience Mm -hmm. and our faculty were not unfamiliar with it Uh, but we did still have to pivot so we trained about 300 faculty from making a decision on a Wednesday that the following Tuesday night classes would be delivered remotely but still in a synchronous fashion we trained about 250 or 300 faculty we got about 5,000 students ready for that experience and if they were going to go to class 6 o'clock on Tuesday, they still did, but now it was using a synchronous tool within the learning management system from their homes or, for, or from work. And uh, I would tell you, we did not miss a beat in terms of student satisfaction, student retention, and student learning. A real credit to the, to the quick pivot we made and the, and the faculty who helped us get there. Um, that, was, that was pretty significant because it is still you know, 5,000 students who know it's a minority, of our students. The other thing that uh, happened, I, I guess we had, uh, I would say, you know, a little bit of en- enrollment uh, opportunity. Typically, when unemployment goes up, students uh, or prospective students think about going back to school. Hmm. However, when the pandemic hit, I think we saw unemployment go up like this. And it went up so sharply that it created a lot of uncertainty in everybody's mm-hmm. lives. Yeah. People were worried about their health and their jobs and the run on toilet paper at the store, honestly, was, everyone was you know, more worried about other things. And so the decision to go back to school was probably put on pause by a lot of people. We saw community college enrollments that were down 20 percent that fall. Uh, and we, well, we didn't quite face that. We didn't grow either. We were fairly stable. Um, and, and so people, again, the assumption that, oh, they're online, they probably grew like crazy. There was too much uncertainty in the world. I don't think anybody grew like crazy. So how we handled the pandemic, I guess, in some, some summary fashion was our campus students were well taken care of and uh, overall retention held really solid. We didn't grow like a big spike, but, but we remained pretty stable in terms of enrollment.
0: And, and so what types of, uh, going back to innovations, came out of the pandemic for the, at the University of Phoenix?
1: Yeah, so the LMS, the learning management system uh, that we use, does have a built-in tool. It's a little bit like a Zoom, but it's uh, built more for education in that it, it has some features like a whiteboard built into it, some polling, and some easy ability to put students in groups or teams. Uh, it's built right into the platform. So oh, while we were using that in, in, I would say, pilot fashion in a few different ways, when we flipped a switch to help our 5,000 students learn Tuesday night at 6 p.m. like you and I are talking, mm. um, we got heavily into using that tool in the LMS for delivery. Mm. We, we learned enough from it that we're doing that now with our online students. And so not just playing with it anymore, but faculty are holding uh, sessions, regular sessions, using that tool and students have the option to come. We, We didn't become a synchronous institution, but we gave students that option. uh, And many students will now attend or they'll attend the recording of it. Uh, And the things that faculty do with it were sort of born out of this this period of intense learning when we moved because of COVID.
0: You know, John, this is a part of what is so important in today's age of personalization. (laughs) And that's and, and it's the word you use options. I think what's what happened as a result of the pandemic is that there were many options uh, that we never really considered because in standardization, we like to limit things to the point where we believe gives us the most efficiency rather than asking the individual what gives them the most efficiency. Uh, So I don't know if you agree with that, but I
1: I (laughs) do. And in fact, one of the things we did, you know, the pandemic hit in uh, the spring and a few months into the pandemic, we said, um, you know, we've got a large college of education preparing teachers for the world, administrators for the world, for K 12. We've got a lot of expertise online. Everybody's scrambling to finish, figure out how to fi- finish the year in K 12, putting stuff online. Experience was very uneven. Parents were looking over kids' shoulders, trying to help them. So we put on something called the Teaching and Learning Academy. And we had thousands and thousands of teachers and administrators join. Mm. Uh, we did it for free. It was a three-day uh, set of webinars, um, and we 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 sought to provide for the teachers and administrators who were trying to figure out what they would do with the fall when they had more time to plan, not the, mm. not the spring, finish things out in a panic. But what would you do if you had more time to plan for the fall, and if this thing was going to continue? Mm. And we at the time, knew it was so we said here are some options where you can create a blueprint for yourselves for the fall and you can you can do it this way or that way we've got some leading experts brought together and we're leveraging what we know we gave people kind of a menu of options to create this the you know the learning uh environment that they wanted for their students at their school or in their district or in their classroom for the fall and uh, you know, you you hit it when you said options. There, there's no one way to do things. Right.
0: That's right. Well, speaking of that, let's focus in now on the adult learner because clearly the workplace changed. Um, and so, how is University of Phoenix really preparing adult learners for this change? And 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 what has dramatically uh, changed due to
1: COVID? Well. Uh, Somebody recently asked me about the the you know newer emphasis on careers and and what it means for us. And I said, well, if I was building a career focused university from scratch, I would want a a, a a faculty model that we already have. John Sperling created it. its a practitioner faculty model. So he um, his design was that he would only hire people who were current in the fields that they were teaching about. Mm-hmm. So you hire a finance professor and they've got to have a resume that says they work in finance. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's different than saying some of our faculty have some great experience in the real world. It's different than saying many of our faculty have worked in the real world. It is all of our faculty are in the real world. And so that's really helped us. Now, that doesn't presuppose that those, those faculty as expert as they are, um, I think, Ours average 25 years in their field of, of teaching that they are mm-hmm. practitioners in. It doesn't uh, uh, presuppose that they're going to be really good at having conversations with students about careers. Hence yes. so you've got to teach that. And they've got to be uh, savvy enough to pick up those cues in, in the classroom discussion of, you know, this person is applying for that job and might need some tips or this person doesn't know where to start to look for that kind of career. So making that more intentional is uh, is really, you know, plus plus. But the practitioner faculty model that I don't think anyone can point to as being as ro- as robust. On average, they have, have 13 years with us and 25 in their field. Wow. Uh, I think that's probably unparalleled.
0: You know, if I can jump into this one, because my organization does a lot of adult learning. And one thing that we've learned is that there's a high level of skepticism now. Like everything is questioned. And recognizing that someone has the experience of what it, in the in the topic or subject matter that they're teaching is incredibly important. But what we're also learning is what is the experience they have and what have they learned? And how does that translate into learning based upon the experiences that they've had in the last five years? It's as if having long experience is great. The, the credential is worthy and respected. But there seems to be this move towards what have you done and learned in the last five years? Because that seems to be kind of like the sweet spot of being able to create or identify a tr- helping Someone create a trajectory towards the immediate future. Any thoughts on that, or what have you seen, John?
1: Yeah, um, a few thoughts. Uh, one of the things you said sparked, uh, um, you know, maybe an interesting side story. One of the programs that we built in in uh, recent memory, about a year and a half ago, was a a, a master's program in healthcare administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, that program was really, really innovative for a couple things that we did when we built it. Uh, One, we not only got feedback from an industry advisory council, and we have those for all of our fields of study, but we actually put some of those voices in the course. Nice. healthcare administrator who might be a a VP or a director, and, and that person's voice is in the course. And they have a little short video where they say something along the lines of, in this course, you're going to learn dot 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 and the reason that's important because, is because and in my experience, what I've seen is so you really make that connection between the learning uh, content and its relevance in the real world for the student. It's insightful and it's motivating and it's to one thing you said earlier it's credibility so, so no so that that sort of uh, thought was sparked. Uh, by your question. The other thing is with this skills tagging system that we have and the skills dashboard that we're building, and uh, I think 80% of our courses are now tagged for skills. So in the future, every student in every course and every program will see what they're learning on a dashboard. Um, They're gonna be able to share that with, with anybody. And that, like I said earlier, is here's what I've learned. Here's the skill you said you, wanted me to have for the job that you've posted. Yeah. And here's how I fared on the assessment of that skill. And you know, if that's if the sweet spot is, what have you done lately? It's, well, I, I can demonstrate I've learned that skill yesterday, the day before, or last year. Here it is in my dashboard. And when I group these skills together, the way we're going to group them in the form of badges, they can share the badge. Uh, and we've got one right now, which is... Uh, our MBA program, the skills that are all in the MBA program are in groups that uh, can be rendered as badges to show any employer, current or prospective, what the student has done in very hands-on learning assignments uh, to demonstrate skills. So that that's, I think, kind of the credibility that, that the world is needing and wanting, uh, that whole, what have you done? What have you learned? Yeah. Uh, I think we've, we've really hit on something with the skills tagging and the badging.
0: John. as we close, I'd like to get your perspective on this. I, you know, in speaking with, you know, your peers in, in the industry, one of my big questions is um, what is really the responsibility or one of the main responsibilities of higher education? Is it to follow industry or is it to help project for industry what their skills should be. And by the way, I kind of favor the the latter only because in the work that I do, I'm seeing that most people in industry aren't quite sure what skills they need. Um, So I really love to get a perspective at least from you, John.
1: Yeah, I think our responsibility is to have um, uh, a role as a a bit of a Sherpa for Mm -hmm. students. Uh, our students again are career students they're not 17, 18, 19 years old exactly. what our role is to be a Sherpa for them to have help them figure out they might need a uh, degree, they might not, they might need a certificate, hmm. we have those they might need short burst learning in the form of a professional development course so we've got to figure out the what the, what the student needs and when they need it and we've got to provide it in a way that um, is uh, you know it's affordable. The time to value is there. We help them with you know, career guidance and making connections and doing career coaching. Mm-hmm. It's that holistic sort of uh, wrapper around the content, the content. You can find the content anywhere, right? You can buy the yellow book, uh, you, you know, this for dummies. You can buy that series for anything you want to learn. Why would you come to a college? Well, hopefully you'd come to a college because you're going to get the content in the right package it could be a degree it could be a certificate it could be a course but you're going to get a lot more around it in terms of guidance and for us it's career guidance and to your question of uh uh, around skills there will never be universal agreement among the even the big employers of what the most important skills are there's only likely ever to be kind of near agreement Mm -hmm. so we've got to provide kind of a or take a bit of a leadership role on why we think certain skills are important, hard and soft. And we're uh, doing that.
0: Well, look, John, I really appreciate your perspective today. You and I can talk all day, but uh, thanks for the great work that you're doing. Your perspectives are uh, very insightful, and I'm sure it'll uh, provide a lot of wisdom for those
1: that are listening. But uh, any final thoughts as we break? Um, I'll leave you with the thought of time and value. So, four years ago, we reduced tuition. And we froze it. And then the last two years, we've created uh, $10,000 master's programs, and they can be done in a year. Hmm. And we have three plus one programs with community colleges, where for about $10,000 in a year, someone can go from their associate's degree to their bachelor's. So it it is all about those three things I talked about, time, value, and support. Excellent,
0: John. I agree with that. And we all need more support today than ever before. Well, Uh, Thanks again, John, for for being with us. And as we always close the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you, John. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day and remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.